Amen. For century after century, preachers have been accused of being unclear, getting distracted while preaching, chasing rabbits, or or trying to say everything there is to say in one sermon. It has been jokingly said there is a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. Come to think of it, whoever said that might not have been joking when they said it. This morning, if you'll agree to do a little hard thinking, I will promise not to keep you too long. But this is not a message that you can drift in and out of and expect to understand what the Lord Jesus is saying here. When we come to these three chapters of Matthew 5 through 7 called the Sermon on the Mount, it requires some diligent thought. Without spending time in prayerful contemplation, we're liable to come away thinking that the Lord Jesus succumbs to the same age-old problem that every preacher has. Yet it is a shallow view of this sermon to think that Jesus might just drone on too long, or it's a shallow view of the sermon to think that Jesus will get off track and say things that are not related as he, you know, chases rabbits. It's a shallow view of the sermon, and, and by extension, the Lord Jesus himself, to think that he rambles on or makes contradictory statements. Yet I've heard all those criticisms about the Sermon on the Mount in the past. So before jumping into this text this morning, I wanted to spend some time pointing to some structural aspects of this sermon so that you'll see that Jesus is on point. He is right where he intends to be. You need to know this because when we read our text this morning, unless we've spent some time thinking it through, we're going to get tempted to think that portions of this, some verses, are unrelated. But of course it's not. Jesus is right on track. His thoughts are clear. It's our minds that get foggy. So to remind you, we've argued that the central theme of the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5 verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees were certain that they had obtained righteousness in the eyes of God by their external actions. But our external actions cannot change the problem in our hearts. The righteousness we need is the righteousness that comes through the Lord Jesus by faith in him that changes who we are. And so last time we saw Jesus use an example of murder in verses 21 through 26, right? You shall not murder seems like maybe one of the easiest commands of God to obey. But Jesus went on to show the implications of what that law means, right? Murder is the external action, but God judges your heart. So he says in verse 22, for example, the unrighteous anger and contempt in your heart condemns you as a murderer. And then he goes on to give some practical application of that guilt in verses 23 through 26 to say, not only are you unrighteous, you also cannot worship God because you can't be wrong with God's children and still be right with God himself. 
Jesus is going to, just like he used the example of murder, he's going to use several examples in the coming sections of the Sermon on the Mount. Just, just look at the way he delineates these. Verse 21, as he starts with the example of murder, he says, you have heard that it's been said to those of old. Verse 27, the first line of today's text, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. In verse 38, you've heard that it was said. In verse 43, you've heard that it was said. Every one of these starts a section where Jesus is giving yet another example, right? Each time he gives, well, here's the command that you've heard and what you've been told about it. And then he proclaims what righteousness really means in regard to that command and goes on to make practical application in order to put it into action. So when we read the next one of those sections in our text, verses 27 through 32, it is a compact, related, on-point section of the sermon Jesus is delivering. In fact, not only is Jesus not wandering in this section, he's not wandering from where he began the sermon. Right? Since, since he's arguing, he's saying that righteousness is not a matter of external obedience, but it requires a heart that's right with God. He started with the Beatitudes, and you can look up at verse 8. One of the Beatitudes is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And now, in this text, those who are not pure in heart, those who, according to verse 28, are committing adultery in their hearts, they will not see God, and in fact, they face the prospect in verses 29 and 30 of being cast into hell, Jesus says. I know that's a lot of introduction without really digging into the text this morning, but I want to be very clear. Matthew 5, verses 27 through 32, Jesus is making a compact, related, on-point argument, and everything he says here flows logically and reasonably. Any struggle we have to see how it flows logically and reasonably is our struggle. It's not his. Now, hopefully having this structural discussion up front is going to help us to avoid one of the temptations that happens with this section in particular, which is just over the years it's been done to just like cut this up into three sort of related but mostly unrelated points that in themselves are hard to accept, but they're not nearly as hard as Jesus intends for them to be. The temptation is to say verses 27 and 28 are dealing with adultery, and then verses 29 and 30 are dealing with just the general way to avoid sin, and then verses 31 and 32 is talking about divorce. So, at this point, having seen the structure of the sermon, you know that's not the case. The fact that this is clearly all one of those you have heard that it was said of old sections tells us, no, all, all of this goes together. And in fact, you can also note that by the way that Jesus bookends it. Verse 27 speaks of you know, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. The end of this section, verse 32, he speaks with a statement about commits adultery. So he sort of bookends this by saying, look, all of this in between is related. 
It all goes together. And here's how it goes together. In this morning's text, the Lord Jesus is going to remind us that God said, you shall not commit adultery. And then he's going to go on to basically say, adultery is a sin worthy of eternity in hell and trying to deal with it externally by removing your own eye with a hook or cutting off your hand with an axe or removing your spouse with divorce, all of that is never going to change the fact that God deals with the lust and judges the lust that exists in our hearts. Now we are going to look at this in sort of those two verse sections that I mentioned, but the goal is going to see how all of this flows together. First off, in verses 27 and 28, it's clear adultery is a heart issue. Verse 27 and 28, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You shall not commit adultery is one of those commands given by God from the top of Mount Sinai, right? It comes right after you shall not murder. And so the Lord God made clear that he demanded you shall not murder. You have to have a respect for the life of others. And with you shall not commit adultery, he demands marital faithfulness from his people. However, when God said, you shall not commit adultery in the Ten Commandments, that was not a new teaching. It should not have surprised anyone. We tend to think of the Ten Commandments or all the law of Moses and think, well, this is when God made up a set of rules. The reality is, while the commandments of God do define sin, those sins already existed, and the commandments came in order for us to be able to identify that we are sinners. So think of it this way. The word most commonly translated as sin in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word chata, and it simply means to miss the mark. So imagine you are, you know, shooting a bow and arrow at a target, and you hit the bullseye in the center, you've hit the mark. But if you, if you miss, if you're off center, if you're high, if you're to the right, if your arrow misses the target completely, anything that is a deviation from the center point is missing the mark. Anything that deviates from that target is in fact missing the mark. It's sin. Or another example would be you are you are walking down a path and there is a pathway, there is a, a roadway, there is a specific path for you to follow, but if you stray off the pathway, you have left the mark. You are missing the mark. Since God says that sin is missing the mark, he is also the one who gets to say what the mark is. He gets to say, well, this is the target that you are to hit. Or he gets to say, this is the path that you're supposed to walk. And he did that long before giving the Ten Commandments. He made Adam. He said it was not good that man should be alone. And the Lord made woman. And the, the old word for that is a help meet. But it, it simply means a helper who is meet, who is fitting, who is suitable for 
Adam, man and woman, they were literally made for each other. And the Word of God back there in Genesis explains, therefore, the man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they two shall become one flesh. That was a lesson for us. You recognize It says that back in Genesis 2, but that wasn't a lesson for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve didn't have a father and mother. That was God saying, this thing that I have done in creating man and woman to be together and uniting them is is an ongoing institution that he has set. That's the mark. One man, one woman, fully and faithfully committed to one another for one lifetime and anything else. Two men, two women, a man and two women, a man with another man pretending to be a woman, anything else, it misses the mark. It is a deviation from the pathway God has set. And we could absolutely use the teaching of the Lord Jesus here and in other places to label and say, look, homosexuality and transgenderism and and polygamy are sin, but like it or not, (laughs) Jesus is not dealing with those here. He's dealing with old-fashioned heterosexual lust here and saying that is sin, that is missing the mark. If, in fact, murder, the act of murder, is sinful and the anger in your heart that leads to murder is sinful, then Jesus next says the act of adultery is sinful and the lust that's in your heart that would lead to the act of adultery is also sinful. Whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, there are some important disclaimers or explainers that... I need to throw out there, and so I'll just do some of these quick. First off, the way Jesus uses the word looks here, to look at a woman, does not mean that you are walking down the street and you notice someone who is indecently dressed, right, who's being purposefully seductive. The act of seeing that is not sin. In the original language, it is evident that Jesus does not just mean seeing. He means to keep on looking. And so, I want it to be clear, to be presented with temptation is not sin. To dwell on that temptation with your eyes and with your mind absolutely is. Second, this completely and totally precludes any approval of pornography. Do not try to bypass this command by saying, well, I'm not looking at a woman. I'm looking at a computer screen. I'm looking at my phone. Because you recognize full well the point the Lord Jesus is making here is that sin is not the issue of what's out there. It's in here. Third, while men by nature are more prone to visual temptation, to lust. This is not a teaching that is exclusive to men. By the time the Lord Jesus finishes this section in verse 32, it's evident there are consequences of sexual sin for men and women alike. If anything, our society has sadly become more approving and promoting of of women being 
you know, visually stimulated by images. Fourth, while it's true that the Lord uses the term adultery here, which we could technically define as the act of having sexual relations outside of your marriage, this does not mean that unmarried individuals are free to lust. They are not. This issue of sexuality is to be confined to a relationship of one man committed to one woman for one lifetime. And if that's not where it's at, it misses the mark. Fifth, perhaps the most ridiculous argument I've heard in regard to this text is, well, if I'm already guilty for thinking it, I might as well go ahead and do it. Such thinking is nothing but wicked nonsense born of a depraved heart. In fact, it makes me angry. And so by that logic, the next person who says that to me, I should just go ahead and murder them because I've already got the anger in my heart, right? The essential teaching in verses 27 and 28 is that any sexual immorality is sin that begins in your heart. Anything that God has said is sinful externally is also sinful internally. If it's wrong to do it with your body, then it's wrong to partake of it with your eyes or contemplate it in your mind because your deceitfully wicked heart is the source of all sin. Jesus makes this point in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, when he says, What comes out of a man defiles a man, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and defile a man. Our hearts are desperately wicked and unknowable, and yet each one of us knows our desperately wicked heart enough to recognize the sin that we so readily crave, and we start setting our eyes and our thoughts on the lustful objects that just fuel the already burning fire. God demands sexual purity and complete faithfulness to your husband or wife. The sin of adultery and the sinful desires, the lustful desires that would lead to adultery must be avoided. So how do we avoid them? Well, in verses 29 and 30, Jesus advises what we'll call radical amputation. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. The seriousness of sin, seriousness of sin can be seen in this threat that your whole body might be cast into hell. You cannot accuse Jesus of understating the consequences of sin. 
In fact, just to be clear about the term Jesus is using, in the New Testament, there's a couple of words that get translated as hell. One of them is Hades, which really just means, you know, the afterlife. But Jesus here uses the word Gehenna, which refers to an actual place outside the walls of Jerusalem. If you remember, Jerusalem is built on a mountaintop. And at the south side of the city, there is a valley called the Valley of Hinnom. That is what this word refers to. Historically, idolatrous Jews had worshipped idols there and even sacrificed their children to idols in that valley. It became a, a place that was hated, that was considered unclean. It, it was a, a kind of city dump in which trash and dead animals and, and, and unclean dead bodies were, were thrown and burned and the fire never stopped burning and the worms never stopped eating. And Jesus describes it that way. Several times Jesus uses that real place as a fitting description of eternal punishment for the wicked. Specifically here, adulterers are deemed to be worthy of the eternal burning trash heap of God. So instead of having your body condemned to an eternity in hell, Jesus suggests some forms of radical amputation in order to make his point. Pluck out your eye. Cut off your hand. And when he gives these two commands, Jesus may well have both this sin of adultery and the former sin of murder in his mind. We would all do better if we so hated sin that we were willing to take drastic measures in order to avoid it. So let's just drill down into this for a moment. If you're reading the New King James Version, it says if your right eye causes you to sin. The classic King James Version says, if your right eye offend thee. Not in the sense of you are offended at it, but that by it you have offended. And so this is the meaning of, of causing you to sin or causing you to cause an offense to God. And the word Jesus uses here is this word scandalizo, which is where we get our English word scandal from, but it, it doesn't mean exactly that it pictures the idea of causing you to trip or causing you to be ensnared. And so a couple of examples how this word is used outside of this might be helpful. Imagine you're, you're walking down a path and in the course of walking down a path, you catch your foot on a piece of stone that is sticking up out of the path and you trip and fall. That piece of stone would be a scandalizo. It, it caused you to stumble. Or another example would be a, a box trap. If you ever seen one of the box traps where there's a box lifted up and a stick put there and the, some kind of tasty little tempting treat inside and when the cute little bunny or whatever comes in to take the treat, it bumps the stick or it bumps the trigger and causes the box to fall. That trigger would be the scandalizo. It's that thing that caused you to become ensnared or trapped. Jesus says here, if you have a wandering eye, you would be better off without that eye than you would being ensnared by sin. If you can't keep your hands to yourself, you'd be better off without that hand than you would be with having it and causing you to fall into sin. 
And so, let's follow the command of Jesus this morning. Y'all debate about who's going to volunteer while I go grab an axe. No volunteers? Do you think that Jesus is actually advocating for self-mutilation here as a means of avoiding temptation to sin? Because I don't. It seems evident that Jesus is using hyperbolic language or exaggerated language in order to make a point. He's going to do this more than just here in this sermon. Later on in chapter 7, you know he famously speaks of your brother having a speck of dust in his eye while you have a wood beam in your own eye. This is exaggerated language. This kind of language seems to be a repeated theme in Jesus' teaching. Actually, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, he says this. Tell me if it sounds familiar. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. We comfort ourselves by saying, oh good, Jesus is using exaggerated language here. But the reality is such exaggerated language is necessary for our wicked hearts to even begin to get the message. If we used less hyperbole, less exaggeration, it loses its effectiveness. Try suggesting to someone or to yourself some strategy that is actually more tenable, more reasonable than cutting off your hand. See just how unreasonable people can become. Oh, you have a problem with internet porn? Okay, cancel your internet service. Throw away your computer. Get rid of the smartphone. Get a dumb phone. Practice some radical amputation in which you remove from your life the thing that enables you to sin, which causes you to become ensnared. And how reasonably do people respond to that? No, I gotta have it. If you're unwilling to do that, you know, if... If what you're doing causes you to sin, stop doing it. If what you're, you're, you're seeing causes you to sin, stop looking at it. If where you're going causes you to sin, stop going there. And if you won't, if you will not consider doing that, then you have to take a long, hard look at yourself and ask, am I taking sin as seriously as Jesus intends me to? And by the way, he's taking it as seriously as being cast into hell. Or maybe, do I love my sin more than I love Jesus? Now, doing some serious thinking about this text has proven difficult so far. Brace yourself for the next step because we should not leave verses 29 and 30 without asking ourselves this question. Does the action commanded by the Lord Jesus here have any potential to be effective? Let me repeat it. Does the action commanded by the Lord Jesus here have any potential to be effective? 
I know it's an uncomfortable question because it sounds like we're doubting Jesus. And you have to know, I do not for a moment doubt Jesus. If he's giving a command here that will not be effective, he's doing it on purpose. But we have to ask, will this work? So picture a married man and he is, attempted, he is, he is tempted to commit adultery. He tells himself though, look, I, I know it's wrong. I know I'm not going to do it. And yet he allows himself the luxury of looking. He has a wandering eye. He tells himself, look, I'm never going to step out on my wife, but his eyes step out plenty and he wants to follow them. He's always casting that wandering eye over to the other woman who is the object of his desire. And so then he comes to Matthew 5 and he reads verses 27 and 28. And even though he's not committed the act, he knows that Jesus judges him guilty of adultery in his heart. And then, then he goes on to verse 29. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. Baha, this is the solution. And he actually mans up and he mutilates his own face with a dinner fork. Now he only has one eye. All his problems are solved, right? How long before the other eye has to go? And how long after that does it take a blind man to realize that the sin that plagues him is the sin that's in his heart? This is absolutely what the Lord Jesus intends for us to see. Yes, you should be willing to remove whatever it is that causes you to get ensnared, but until you address your heart problem, even the most extreme solution is going to be ineffective. He's not getting sidetracked here. He is not off topic here. And it isn't until we grasp that truth that we're ready for the next compact, related, on-point conclusion of Jesus. So keeping this in mind, if you don't address your heart problem, even the most extreme solution is going to be ineffective. Verses 31 and 32. Now let's talk about divorce. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. What we're not going to do this morning is try to cover everything the Bible has to say about divorce. We will have to deal with it in more detail later. If you want to go ahead, I will, I will tell you to go to Matthew 19. It opens with the Pharisees coming to Jesus and testing him, saying, is it, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And there Jesus goes back to Genesis and outlines, well, here's the mark. And he explains why the law of Moses says what it does about divorce. He repeats much of the teaching here and even talks to his disciples about whether or not they should be getting married in the first place. And of course, Paul talks about divorce and inspired by the Holy Spirit seems to include abandonment as a biblical ground for divorce. There's, there's a lot more and unfortunately we're, we're, <laughs> we're just going to punt that for this morning because this by itself is hard enough, right? Right? 
Jesus is demanding righteousness that goes beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. They interpreted the law of Moses as allowing divorce for any reason. And in the process, they ignored the rest of Scripture. Malachi 2, verse 16, exclaims, The Lord God of Israel says, I hate divorce. Why does God hate divorce? Well, because all divorce is the result of sin. I'm, I'm not saying there, there can't be an innocent party, but there can't be two innocent parties. Most often, there are two guilty ones. Our legal system can advocate for no-fault divorce all it wants to, but there is no such thing as a no-sin divorce. And since God hates sin, God hates divorce. That's what he said in Malachi. But in the law of Moses, because he knows he's dealing with sinful people, God placed some restrictions on how divorce could be done. And Jesus notes that in verse 31. You've heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This was, to, this was a practice in order to protect the innocent party. Because according to some rabbis, a man could divorce his wife for serving a bad dinner, for being too contentious, or just because the husband found someone else he would rather be married to. And so giving a certificate of divorce was a protection for the woman so the man couldn't later claim to have some authority over her and also she could say, look, this was something that was, it's not something I did, it's something that was done to me. The scribes and Pharisees were preoccupied with the external appearance of righteousness with thinking that, that being right with God was all about their external law-keeping that in the process, inside their wicked hearts, ran amok with treacherous marital decisions. Oh, I would never commit adultery. But since I found someone I would rather have, I mean, I just can't stop thinking about her. I'm going to divorce this woman and I'm going to marry that one. Voila, righteous. And so keeping in context, it's evidence that some of them had a wandering eye, divorced their wives, married some other woman they found more attractive, and all the while claimed to be righteous, right? This is not adultery. I've done nothing wrong. I mean, I filled out the paperwork. I'm righteous. I've got the forms to prove it right here. But Jesus says, unless she's done something wrong, really wrong, not burning dinner wrong, not yelling at you for not helping with the dishes wrong, not being less attractive than the other woman you're lusting after, unless she has herself engaged in sexual immorality, divorcing her is wrong. And by the way, even in cases of sexual immorality, divorce was not mandated, it was just allowed. Even in cases of sexual immorality, I always advocate for reconciliation. I, I know it's not always possible. Sometimes it's a hurt that just isn't going to mend. But short of that, everything else should be reconcilable if there's willingness to work through it. Willingness to work through it is the right thing to do. Unwillingness to work through it is sin. It's not an unpardonable sin. It's not going to, it doesn't make you unforgivable in the eyes of the Lord, but it is serious. And it propagates more sin. Divorce 
doesn't fix the problem. Right? Plugging out your eye, cutting off your hand, tossing out a spouse does not fix the problem of the heart. And that's where the heart of the problem is. And if you don't address the heart problem, even the most extreme solution will be ineffective. Divorce ignores the real source of sin because even after divorce, lustful people are still lusting and mean people are still mean and selfish people are still selfish. So it's sin, Jesus says. It misses the mark. Remember the mark, one man, one woman, faithfully committed for a lifetime. And so can we just trust Jesus that even though he's teaching some hard truths here, that he wants the best for us? Adultery and lust and divorce, they are destructive, right? It's destructive of marriages, of, of children, of families. They are not the ultimate good for ourselves or others. And it's foolish to think that we can justify those sins to God. You are not going to appear before him someday and say, well, I committed adultery because I knew you wanted me to be happy. I wasn't looking at a woman, I was looking at my computer screen. That wasn't adultery, it's okay because I filled out the forms. Aren't you gonna look at my paperwork? But here's the good news. Every example that Jesus gives of the law of Moses and how we are sinful in our hearts to the very core of who we are inside, every one of them is a cause to look to him in faith because it is all forgivable. Every person is redeemable. The Lord Jesus came to save sinners. We need righteousness that's greater than the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees because they, they looked like the best people, but real righteousness was beyond their grasp. And yet Jesus has come to save sinners so that if you are guilty of adultery or guilty of lust, you're guilty of giving up on the marriage vows that you made, even the worst sinner can find true righteousness simply through faith in the Lord Jesus because he is the righteousness that we need. And when you trust him and you have his righteousness, then you will live in that righteousness. True righteousness doesn't go about committing adultery. It does not traffic in lustful looks. It does not abandon our marital commitments. True righteousness is righteousness that's from the heart but it's from a heart that has been changed through faith in the Lord Jesus and the perfect righteousness that we have through him.